This week's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by LaCie. As one of the leading media storage companies in the entertainment industry, LaCie has consistently brought innovative ideas to the market. By now, everyone knows the iconic orange rubber bumper that wraps the LaCie rugged drive. But did you know that LaCie has a rugged SSD? With the ability to transfer 4K raw video with speeds up to 4 megabytes per second, hardware encryption, and a truly rugged design that will take most anything you can throw at it, including dropping it in water or running it over with a two-ton car, the rugged SSD is a dream piece of equipment for any content creator who is on the move. For listeners of the Art of the Cut podcast, LaCie is offering 10% off the rugged SSD or any other LaCie drive when you shop on filmtools.com with coupon code LACIEPOD. That's L-A-C-I-E-P-O-D at checkout to receive 10% off your LaCie purchase on filmtools.com. So next time you need a new drive, head over to filmtools.com and use code LACIEPOD at checkout to get 10% off your LaCie purchase. Hello and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hullfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Tim Squires, ACE. Tim's work on Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was nominated for a BAFTA award, an Oscar, and an Ace Eddie. He was also nominated for a BAFTA, an Ace Eddie, and an Oscar for Life of Pi, and another Ace Eddie for Gosford Park. Today I'm speaking with Tim about editing director Ang Lee's feature, Gemini Man, starring Will Smith. Tim, tell me a little bit about what your uh, collaboration is like with Ang Lee. How do you guys work together? Push each other a little bit and respect each other's opinions a lot and, um, you know, have managed to find a way to work together that's really productive and has been fairly successful. You know, the key is, Ang once said, talking about me somewhere, that it was great because we we disagree all the time. <laughs> and, of course, we don't disagree all the time. We agree 95% of the time. Just the last 5% is what we spend our time talking about. Things that we agree about we don't need to be uh, addressing every day. Uh, so, yeah, it's, you know, it's just a collaboration that's worked out. I think we're similar in a lot of ways, but different enough to keep it interesting and productive. How do you collaborate? Are you a show-and-tell kind of guy? You talked about disagreeing. Do you have uh, longer discussions? What's the way that, that you guys hash things out? During production, I'm involved a lot in pre-production, but during production, on most movies, we hardly talk at all. I, you know, I get the footage. I get virtually no indication of what to do with it. If he had a plan, he doesn't share it with me. So I kind of figure it out myself, and I send him back cuts. You know, I send him back two or three versions of everything. And generally, I don't hear anything back. If he thinks he got the scene covered based on what I show him and based on what he thought on the day, if he feels he got everything he needs, he he's better off spending his time thinking about what he's shooting tomorrow rather than what he shot yesterday. So um, the assembly, I generally really do in a vacuum, which is fine with me. I don't, you know, I, I'm used to it, so I don't, I don't need feedback. On big visual effects films like Life of Pi and Gemini Man, I'm more closely involved. I was actually in Budapest for a couple of months on Gemini Man uh, with the shoot, but it's, even so, he doesn't give me doesn't give me much notes. It's, it's that sometimes in visual effects you have to get ahead of things start turning things over if they just take a long new time. But then once once production is finished, then he comes in and sits with me all day. And uh, we just start and go through it. And usually I've prepared, you know, multiple versions of everything. I mean, there is an assembly. There's a, you know, a single version of the film that we start with, but saved separately. I've got many versions of all kinds of things and we just kind of go through those and, and work our way through it, but it's um, we've gotten to be quite efficient at it because we've done it enough and uh, know how to work together and just kind of bang through it. He's, he's not someone who kind of gets lost in it and says, "Oh, let's look at everything again." And you know, we don't we don't do that. We're able to stick to the plan and and, and push ahead based on the the preparation work that I've done. It's interesting that you say that you do multiple versions of the scenes. Obviously, there's lots of editors that will say they do that for some scenes, but it sounds like you do yeah. virtually. All I do it for every scene. Yeah, I do it for every scene. I mean, I never do a scene once. 
I mean, working with other directors, sometimes I do get told that there's a plan. There was a plan for this scene. And even then, I'll, I'll do that plan, but I'll also do something else. I don't do that plan first. I'll do my own thing with the footage and then look and see what the plan was and see if I've already done it. And usually I've come pretty close already. But no, I think your job as editor during the assembly is to explore what's possible with the footage. With a big complex scene based on performance, there can be the angry version or the sad version like that. Or a temperature difference. Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's based on coverage. You do a, a different version. But then sometimes like on a big complex action scene or something with a lot of coverage, a lot of footage, you'll be just do it again. Spent all day on this version that I like. Great. Now do it again. And what I do is the way that I assemble is I have a, uh, you know, I'll go through the dailies and I'll wind up with a sequence of pulls, a sequence of things that I like, which are the pieces that I might build the, the scene out of, which is at least one line reading from each setup, you know, the best line reading from the, the medium shot and the best line reading from the close up, or maybe two or three from each if there are good ones. And so I have that pull sequence. I'll duplicate it, take version one and put it on the end with dupe detection on. And so I can see what I've used before ah, and then do it again, do it again and try not to use those pieces. Very I certainly don't use them in the same order. So, I was about to ask you about that very thing, because a lot of times if I've cut a scene once and I go cut it a second time, you know, I'll try to force myself to think differently, but at certain points you tend to do the same thing. Yeah, yeah. In my head. No. And so it's interesting that you use dupe detection to try to keep yourself from doing that. I mean, sometimes there's a particular cut that's just obvious, you know, that you, you kind of have to make it. But I'll try, I'll try something else. But generally, version two hopefully won't contain any of the same footage as, as version one. Sometimes it depends on the scene. It depends on how complex the scene is. But yeah, uh, I, I really think my job is to try what's there. Another thing that I do. I started doing this back on the ice storm is if I have a scene that's say just a simple dialogue scene between two people, I have medium shots and I have close-ups. First thing I do is cut the whole scene just in the medium shots. And then I'll cut the whole scene again, just in the close-ups. And, and I won't use the master at all in either of them. Then I'll look at them and then I'll decide when to be wide and when to be close rather than thinking beforehand, because that way, I choose what works better based on having done it, not based on what I think is going to work better. The other good thing about that is when you, you know, you get to a scene and you've covered this, you've done this section in the, in the close-ups and the director says, oh, I really thought I was going to be in the medium shots for that. It's already done. I don't have to sit there and do it. Mm -hmm. So that's, it's a big time saver. Of course, it takes more time during the assembly, yeah. but uh, it saves a ton of time later. I've heard of a couple of other editors that do that same thing. I can see that it's a value also because if you're cutting the scenes with the medium shots and the close-ups, you could get out of a rhythm of being at a certain place on a close-up just because, oh, I was a medium shot here, so now, of course, I'm going to be on a close-up. If you do it all close-ups and all medium shots, you don't have that same forced rhythm of when you're in a close-up. Right. Yeah, very interesting. Right. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I don't know whether... Uh, You've heard him say this. I swear this is an Ang Lee quote that the shooting is grocery shopping and the real cooking is when you're in the edit <laughs> in yeah. the cutting room. That must make you feel good. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot more comfortable in the kitchen than it is wandering around the grocery store. Um, happy to be working with a director who feels that way, that what you're doing in the editing room is not just executing the plan and putting the ends of the shots together and it's done. It's uh, what you're doing in the editing room is really very fundamentally telling the story. Mm -hmm. And you said that he's usually in the cutting room with you. That's a little unusual. I mean, there's other directors certainly that do that, but uh, he's always there. He's not just like wandering in, giving you some notes. I'll be back tomorrow. No, he's, he's there most of the time. Sometimes he'll be there. He's, just, he doesn't, he's not there as many hours as I am, but no, he puts in a full day for months on end. I don't think he knows that you don't have to do that. <laughs> uh, you mentioned that you've got two, sometimes three versions of a scene, but of course, when you cut them together into uh, an assembly, you've got to pick your favorite, I'm assuming, because he's not there to pick his yeah. favorite. Yeah. Uh, do you always show him every version, or is it only 
when you go through the assembly and you're like, ah, the scene's not really working for me. Do you have another version? Then you pull something out. I show them alternate versions uh, while he's shooting. You know, but you said I, you never get the feedback from that. Yeah, I don't get any feedback from it. It's just if he knows that he's got it covered, then that's it. I only hear something back if there's if he thinks there's a problem or if I think there's a problem. You know, that's part of my job too. Is if I get the footage and I think there's a problem, I have to let him know. You know, if I have three versions of a scene, you know, the beauty of uh, features is it's a long shoot. So I'll have, you know, scene 41 of three versions of, and a month later we shoot scene 42, and two days later we shoot scene 40. At some point then I'll go back and I have, you know, several versions of each of these, and I'll go through and go back to my old versions that maybe I did weeks ago uh, or months ago and build out of those what goes into the assembly. And it's not always that I take version two of scene 41. Maybe I'll take, I'll take bits and pieces out of, out of all of them and sometimes do other new things too. It's not always just drawing on those. And then I'll save the other ones and mark what's, what's different that's interesting about them for easy reference later. Maybe halfway through the shoot or two-thirds of the shoot, in addition to cutting the new days daily, I'll then start going back to the old scenes and building out what will become the assembly cut. And yeah, I do that on my own because he's busy shooting the movie. And then we do a pretty thorough sound job and music and the works. So when we sit down and watch the assembly, it looks like the movie. It looks like a movie. It doesn't look like the movie's going to wind up because I haven't dropped any lines. I haven't rearranged any scenes. If you try to make everything work the way it was scripted, that way you feel confident in dropping it. If you have a scene that doesn't work, that you're going to drop, you try to make it work. It's very rare that I'll drop a scene before we screen the assembly and then only when I let him know. And usually he said, oh, yeah, that was terrible. You mentioned how you put the assembly together as it's scripted. And I've talked to multiple editors that say the same thing. I always put it together the way it's scripted. But other yeah. people say... No, if I think I can get into a scene later, then I'll just drop the first four or five lines. Are you doing that? Or are you doing that in other versions? Uh, sometimes in other versions, I'll do a little bit of trimming. But no, I, I, we do that later. Yeah. I, I really try to make everything work as intended in the script so that, you know, then you watch it in context and go, oh, well, we can drop that. You know, in, in television, if you're on a really tight schedule, maybe sometimes you have to do that. But I prefer to leave it as as written and then watch it, you know, watch the whole thing. And then sometimes those things just become obvious. You mentioned television. You've done a couple of TV pilots, but it looked like you don't usually continue past the pilot. No, that's correct. The only uh, only series I've done past the pilot was um, this show called Now and Again that uh, ran for one season. And uh, I cut the pilot and the first half of the one season while and I was doing that while I was assembling Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon. Uh, and then, yeah, so I was, I was busy that fall. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, then I left to go finish Crouching Tiger. But yeah, I've never, that's the only s series work I've done. It seems like you've got enough feature work, but I guess you can never have too much work. Why do you do the pilots? Uh, pro uh, they're directors um, you like or directors? Yeah, it'd be something interesting. I mean, I've done three pilots for, uh, Glenn Gordon Karen, uh, who did Moonlighting years ago, and he did Now and Again and Medium, which I cut the pilot and then I directed an episode in season two of that. It fit in the schedule. I like working with Glenn. I did the pilot to Nurse Jackie. The director of that was Alan Coulter, who I had worked with uh, on a film called Hollywoodland. And, you know, Alan asked me to do it, and I like working with Alan and fitting the schedule. And so, yeah, it's um, when it works in, it's. Uh, it's kind of a fun thing to do. You know, series television, it can be a grind, but pilots, nothing's established yet. Right. So you're not tied into a, a certain look and a certain rhythm. And it's, a, you know, chance to meet somebody new and, and do something different. So You mentioned directing. Is that something that you started since you've been editing? And was it something that as you watched great directing happen around you, you're like, you finally figured that you could do it? Or talk to me about directing. Well... A long time ago, you know, back when I was in my 20s, I did I did a bunch of directing even before I moved to New York, and that's kind of, yeah, but local stuff, not, nothing big, and student films and things. When I came here, I fell into editing, you know, and really liked it, but 
you have opinions and you have ideas. And I raised the possibility of directing one with him. And he said, sure, that seems like something you could do. Uh, I, I directed a couple of episodes. Editing is interesting preparation for directing because you learn a lot about where to put the camera, how to pace things, all that. You learn absolutely nothing about what to say to an actor to get them to do what you want them to do. You know, so that's the part I was worried about. So, you know, I came in with full shot lists, everything planned, boom, 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 boom. You know, in terms of the set running smoothly, it was it was great. No problems at all. Felt very natural. Sometimes talking to the actors was a little tricky. Even some of the crew, I mean, you're not as an editor in charge, you know, you're not big and in charge of a, a lot of things. You're in your room with your, you know, your director, and that's usually that's about it. Uh, it's an interesting transition. There are a lot of editors who have directed once. In my case, uh, I've directed twice. I thought about pursuing it, but the thing is, if you're going to do it, if you're going to direct for television, for example, you have to, you know, you have to get yourself into that world and have, have those connections. It's the same thing with, you know, I've done some commercials, edited a bunch of commercials, but that's all about connections and being tied into that and then I go do a feature and disappear for a year and lose all of that again so at some point it seemed like if I was going to pursue directing as a career I would have to uh, kind of turn my back on on editing and on editing with Aang and that didn't seem like a good idea so uh, so I didn't pursue it to get back to Gemini Man and, and other things you've probably done uh, you mentioned that you do a lot in pre-production. What are you doing in pre-production? Depends on the movie. Let's talk about this one. First of all, you know, I get every draft of the script and and give notes on it. Now, this case, it was a lot of chefs in the kitchen on, on a film like Gemini Man. First of all, the script had been around for 20 years mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in various versions. Ours was a substantial rewrite. We have to worry about Paramount and Skydance. It's not like Hang and I can just come up with a script we like. So there's that. In Gemini Man, it was actually a lot less than in uh, Life of Pi. Gemini Man, there were a couple of extended action sequences that we pre and I was involved in those, had a lot of input in those, but not nearly as much as it was in Life of Pi. Yeah, Gemini Man actually wasn't that much. Generally, with Ang's films, I'm always involved in the script development on, on one level or another. It depends on you know, a film like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, I was getting translations that didn't, they were terrible translations and I didn't understand the movie at all. I gave notes on the script, but I told them they were, weren't really relevant. I wouldn't have taken that movie if it hadn't been Aang doing it because the script made no sense at all. But that was because of bad translations. But, you know, but the films are in Mandarin. So I have to deal with that because I don't speak Mandarin. That's an additional complication. One complication with those the Wedding Banquet was written in English. Well, no, it was written in Chinese, but as a good translation. Eat, Drink, Man, Woman was written in Chinese. Of course, the dailies are just the dailies. They just come in in Chinese, with, uh, and, and I have to figure it out. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, that was written, developed everything entirely in Chinese. And there were English translations done, but they were terrible. Translating from Chinese to English the translator should be a native English speaker or a very good English speaker. And it wasn't, it was the translations were done by a Mandarin speaker who was competent in English, but the scripts were not competent. And same with Lost Caution. Those translations were very bad. That complicates things a little bit. Cantonese and Mandarin are spoken completely differently, but written the same. So, uh, it, it, on Crouching Tiger, Michelle Yeoh and Cheyenne Fat spoke to each other in Cantonese. Cheyenne Fat spoke to Ang in Mandarin, and Ang spoke to Michelle Yeoh in English. It was very complicated on set because Ang doesn't speak Cantonese. Wow. That's uh, the film is in Mandarin, so Cheyenne Fat was, and Michelle Yeoh were both speaking Mandarin, but neither of them is very good at it. They're both native Cantonese speakers. And then Zhang Ziyi is a native Mandarin speaker. She doesn't speak, she didn't speak English or Cantonese. Very complicated. Uh, but anyway, back to the pre-production question. On Life of Pi, there were a bunch of things 
script, of course, and script we had we were much more independent on that. It was really just David McGee, who's our, our writer, and Ang and and me consulting. But because that was going to be 3D in a wave tank with a visual effects ocean and tiger, sometimes the way you shoot a movie is you just go in and get a whole bunch of coverage and figure it out later. We knew we were not going to be able to do that. We really had to go in with a visual effects plan that was going to work. We weren't going to be able to get a lot of coverage. So because of those limitations, we decided to do a previs. And previs, a substantial amount of the film, I mean, from the shipwreck to him leaving the island, if you've seen it. It's, it was over an hour of previs. Initially, the idea was just so that we could make sure we had a, a visual effects plan that was going to work and everybody could you know, show up on, on set with an understanding of what we were doing. But, um, you know, you give creative people something creative to do and they get ideas. And what happened during that is while we were working on the previs, we would get ideas for things that would then go back into the script. And the writer would get ideas for things that would come back into the previs. And it was this really interesting kind of parallel development because it's a film that's not really strongly plot driven not strongly dialogue-driven. A lot of it is, is something happens, and it's, oh, why don't we have the whale do this? You know, which we would say, figure out during the previs, and then we would tell the writer, and he would work it in, and then he'd have ideas, and we'd send them back to us. So that previs process was really interesting. It was also part of getting the film greenlit. Fox, understandably, was very reluctant to greenlight that movie. It took them a long time to come around, so... This hour and change of previs that we did had a full sound job, you know, sound effects, music, the whole thing, which, you know, which I did just to kind of make it look interesting uh, and help to, to really sell it. Another thing that I did during pre-production. The previs got paid for and edited before the green lighting. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it was part of selling it, but it was also part of convincing them, but also convincing ourselves that this was going to be doable. And then the um, previs, you had to stay very close to the previs then when you edited because that no much coverage or no no well the they they shot based on the previs not exactly of course you know, things change mm -hmm. and then once I got the footage I could ignore the previs you know the previs didn't matter however I didn't have a whole lot of options you know I, because we had limited coverage there weren't that many alternate ways I could do it but I wasn't I wasn't in any way constrained to stick to the previs. Um, but we had worked a long time in the previs and we're pretty happy with it. So, in, you know, that was often a place where I started uh, was that structure because usually that structure was pretty good because, you know, we, we had worked on that. And you'd cut it. But, it wasn't cut by a previs yeah. editor. It was cut by you. No, no, I, I cut the previs, yeah. But another uh, thing that I did, you know, in that movie, there are a bunch of, well, first of all, it's 3D, which Ang and I had never worked on 3D before. So we had to learn about 3D. So we shot a lot of 3D tests, and I did a lot of work with those tests, partly just to learn how to edit in 3D, because at that time, Media Composer didn't support 3D. So to do convergence adjustments and things, and to do any kind of comping and visual effects, it was a chore. So I had to learn how to do that. But also we... We wanted to do some interesting things, you know, interesting filmic things besides just cuts and dissolves and fades. Uh, I don't know if you've seen Hulk, but you know, there's a lot of very elaborate transitions. And those were all done in editorial. None of that was planned beforehand. And wow, really? Yeah, that was all. That was part of the editing process. He just told me anything you can think of. And so we would just think of things. But we wanted to do not not crazy like that on Life of Pi, but you know the transitions from the storyteller in Montreal to the story that he's telling in the past. Some of those transitions are fairly elaborate, so it was my job to work those out. So I actually hired actors and shot all those transitional scenes. And the, the stuff in India, they shot very early in the shoot. Uh, we went on to the set that they were building for the apartment. And I shot all the all the other parts and worked out all what all the transitions were going to be. And even during pre-production, I had worked out some techniques that I thought we could do and figured out what you have to do in 3D and where you have to put the green screen and and all of that. So that was another of my jobs. 
on Life and Pi. So I was actually, I was in Taiwan where we shot it for, I made four separate trips for about nine weeks in Taiwan because every time I was there, I also shot, uh, wound up working with the uh, the second unit. It was an, like insert unit and I wound up supervising a bunch of that coverage because I just knew, I knew exactly what we needed. Yeah, I've heard of several editors doing second unit work because you're like, I'm the one that's got to use it. <laughs> I'm the one that needs it. Yeah, my shooting ratio when I do the second unit, my the, the percentage that I use is high. Oh, yeah, so my shooting is yeah, quite yeah. low. A Billy Lynn's halftime walk, 120 frames per second. Yep. This is the same, correct? And 3D. Yeah, and Billy Lynn was 3D also. So now are you editing 3D in Avid because Avid's capable of it? or I the 3D in Avid for Life of Pi. It just didn't support it. Uh, you just you had to trick it. But, you know, if you have your dailies side-by-side or you're outputting a side-by-side image, you monitor it and present it as 3D. You know, I heard all kinds of things about how 3D is different and how you have to do things differently in 3D. And I thought, you know, I haven't done this before, and I don't want to be second-guessing everything I do. You know, normally you sit and watch and you react to what you see. I wanted to be able to do that, and the only way I could do that and not have to think, uh, this looks good in 2D, but in 3D... I probably want to do it cut it slower or differently somehow. If I figured if I just cut in 3D, I could just respond to what I see and not have to second guess everything. Mm-hmm. So all three of those films I cut entirely in 3D. I've still only seen Life of Pi in 2D twice ever at this point. Really? Yeah. Uh, we did, all right, from Assembling Dailies, I did everything in 3D. The editing room that I used for Life of Pi and Billy Lynn, I had to assemble on a monitor, but then I had uh, a 12-foot screen, and the room has a big 5-1 system. So it's it's like a movie theater. And then on Gemini Man, I had a 15-foot screen in a slightly bigger room. You know, we try to mimic a real environment as much as we can. So because high frame rate is different, it feels different, and you probably cut differently based on that. So we just... Uh, Billy Lynn and Gemini Man, I cut at 60, not at 120, because uh, Media Composer can't run at 120. For Gemini Man, 60 is what's going to be in most theaters. So it made sense to cut at 60. And you're cutting on a big screen. I do think that makes a big difference. Yeah. The size, yeah. Of, the, the size of the monitor, the size of the screen. Yeah, and it varies depending on what I'm doing. Sometimes just to save electricity, I work on the monitor. Uh, and sometimes, you know, if I'm sound editing, I'll generally work in TV. But it's it's we always watch the movie. Usually, when Ang's there, we, we're 3D on the big screen. And you've got a background in sound, uh, the sound department, sound design. Um, tell me yeah. a little bit about how those sound skills uh, speak to picture editing. I mean, we say picture editing, yeah. but you're not picture. You're not editing picture. You're editing the movie, and the yeah. movie is two things: a picture and sound. And the sound is a very important part of it. Sound has a big influence on how you experience the film, whether it's music or just the level of the sound effects. There's a visceral impact that sound has that's a crucial part of the storytelling. So you can't ignore it. In Crouching Tiger, because of limited resources and because of the shot, the fight scenes all MOS, I just focused on the music on that. But during the assembly you know, screening, I told my assistant who had the volume knob for this one op- opening fight season uh, see, uh, scene, I used these heavy Japanese drums. I told him, you know, just start it fairly loud and just keep turning it up. By the end, you know, your shirt was shirt was doing this. Ang had always seen that scene, MOS. You know, when I sent him dailies, there was no sound to it all because they shot it silent. That was also kind of selling that idea. And it, it was great. And, uh, you know, we never even considered doing anything different with the music on that. So the sound is, it's a critical part of the storytelling. You know, one thing that's great, the room that I've done these last three films in, it's a good, uh, I cut in 5.1. The room is 7.1, but for compatibility with other rooms, uh, I work in 5.1. There's a shot right at the beginning of uh, Gemini Man with this kind of fisheye shot of train tracks, and a train comes in, you know, from one side, and goes, but it's a very dramatic move. And... To have that sound, and it's a, a really fast train. It's you know one of these European bullet trains. So it's going 200 over 200 kilometers an hour, and right past the camera. So the I just made it 
the the volume ramps and the panning is really aggressive. It's a very hard right then, boom, boom, as it as the train goes. That's so much more effective than you know hearing a train by and just figuring out those those kinds of things. That's a very fundamental part of the job is making the sound effective. Sometimes the sound is more important than the picture. Movie editors yeah. should be really good with sound because that's a, a very fundamental part of the job. Now, it's also a part of the job where you have to know when to stop. I could do a very elaborate sound job in the Avid, but then if you have to do a 12-frame trim and you're running 40 tracks of audio, it, it becomes unmanageable. So you have to know where to draw the line, mm-hmm. where to say, this is as far as I'm going to take it. If we're previewing, we'll go in and have some sound editors work on it and, and do a mix. But you, you try to find a balance between making it sound as good as you can but not doing so much that it becomes cumbersome to, to work with. So you talked about this room that you've got. Yeah, I'm just um, trying to figure out the relationship to the screen, and you must be sitting, like, up high. No, so it's just a flat floor, straight back. Uh, the room is about 26 feet long, hmm. and we sit at the back of the room, uh, a 15-foot screen in front, and three speakers and a subwoofer behind the screen, Three, you know, behind. and then surrounds up the side. This is a very good small screening room. And the other thing is, you know, on Dougie Lynn and Gemini Man, because we're 120, no lab facility can support us. So we had to have our own. This new facility, we have we built a theater, a good theater. It's one of the best small screening rooms in New York. And we had two 4K Christie Mirage projectors. And, you know, that's our screening room. And we have our lab there. Uh, we have two base lights and two petabytes of spinning storage with all our dailies and all of everything at uh, at full resolution, 3D at 120. So it's a lot of a pixels. Lot of storage. Yeah, it's a lot of that's a lot of space, and but all shot shot digitally. Yes, yeah. shot in uh, Alexa M's. Mm, got it. On some custom rigs, uh, Stereotech is a company in Germany, and they built some custom rigs for us. Have you ever edited on another NLE other than Avid? Uh, I first learned back in 1990 or 91 on EMC. Oh, okay. Doing them at all. You know, the, the store of the material on laser discs. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very cumbersome and I hated it. And that's the only one. I mean, I've messed around with uh, Final Cut, but I've never gotten paid to use anything other than media composer. Did you do film? Because you're right on the cusp transition-wise. It looks, as a film editor, you were right on the edge. Yeah. A lot of the sound work that I did, uh, you know, I was supervising sound editor on a bunch of features and assistant on four features uh, on film. Uh, Well, the first two features that I cut were on film, one of Ang's and one before it. And then we cut the wedding banquet on an Avid, 1992. It's one of the very, very first Films cut on on Media Composer. I've worked pretty exclusively on Media Composer ever since. That's early Avid. Yeah, and we did we did the whole thing Media Composer. I mean, I cut. We there was no film. The first film we saw was Answer Print. I cut the the production tracks and the music in Media Composer, and we took it to Sound One in New York and laid it off because you can only output two tracks, two channels at that time. So we would output it two channels at a time to an analog 16 track, and then we use that as a source in the mix. It was really a true Avid. I mean, it wasn't any kind of hybrid job. It was completely Avid. Uh, Gemini Man, so Will Smith plays himself. How did you edit yeah. those performances before you got uh, composites, you know, effects work, final effects work back in? Okay, well, the way we did that, I mean, there are two different, two basic different kinds of, scenes with the young Will Smith character. With the young character, either there are some scenes that he's in with the older character. Their names are Henry and Junior. Henry is 50-year-old Will Smith, and Junior is 23-year-old Will Smith. And then uh, there are other films with Junior that Henry's not in. So in scenes with Junior but no Henry, Will Smith played the character on set with dots all over his face and the headgear, you know, with the capture cameras out here. So before I had any visual effects, that's what I used because that's all there was. So we just learned to ignore the dots in the cameras. <laughs> the harder ones were scenes where the two of them are in, you know, because when they're in the same shot, 
Junior is being played by another actor. We had a stand-in who read the lines, did everything. Initially, that's all I had. So that's what I would cut with because I didn't have any choice. But then about halfway through the shoot and then again at the end of the shoot, we shot in, in Savannah, you know, the area around Savannah, Georgia. Then uh, a few weeks in Cartagena, in Colombia. And then we went to Budapest for the last two months. When they first went to Budapest, they spent about a week and a half doing performance capture. So that was now Will Smith playing Junior on a performance capture stage. You know, so we had a whole bunch of cameras around. He was wearing a motion capture suit and the camera rig. And they played the scene again. And this time the stand-in was playing Henry uh, and he was playing Junior. Now it wasn't lit. It wasn't on the real set. They would build enough of a set so that they, you know, that they could just go to the right place. But the point was to capture his performance. Uh, and then we did another batch of that after we finished the shoot, still in Budapest. You know, after we finished principal, then we did capture on the rest of it. For that, what I did is I uh, went to the witness cameras. I had all the witness cameras. And I would find the angle that best matched what was in the shot and did a picture in picture to put that head or sometimes the body over top of what we shot, which was the sand in. And that's what we did. You know, we would track this box so that the performance <laughs> is there. And that's what we watched for a long time because that's the best you can do. Now, you know, as Weta started doing their work, of course, we would swap those out. But uh, but I still kept those motion captures because we often had to refer back to them. So. I kept them muted in the timeline up above. We had a mass layer, and I kept them present but hidden in the timeline. But for a long time, that's all we could do. Probably a VFX editor was working side by side with you, replacing those shots. In yeah, or, yeah. You know, it was a lot of shots, so we were we had a visual effects editor and assistant. Yeah, keeping up with the visual effects is a every all day, every day job. You said that you were usually editing in New York in this beautiful room you've got. Uh, but you also, I yeah. thought you heard you say you did go. I was in Budapest for the whole time they were there. Uh, so I spent two months in Budapest uh, at, at a great facility. There's a studio just on the out, on the edge of town called Origo Studios. Terminator was coming in right behind us. Blade Runner had shot there before us, uh, a while before us. So it's, it's a very good facility. And uh, the room that I had to cut in there, I wasn't, wasn't projecting there. I was on a monitor, but a really nice monitor. No, we were very happy with that facility. And they had room for us to put our lab there, which was amazing. Because, I mean, just the air conditioning that we need is astounding. Oh, were you just doing motion capture in Budapest, or were you actually shooting well, live? a lot of the film is set in Budapest. And so we shot in Budapest. So in addition to dealing with the motion capture, I was just, that's where I was working. I was getting dailies every day. We were having to start to turn over roughly turn over some of the some of the earlier stuff most of what we shot in Carnahana is a big extended action chase scene we wouldn't we weren't really turning anything over for that but there were some things that kind of had to get looked at by by the bosses with uh billy lynn and life of pi and this movie you've done quite a bit of 3d is there a trick to it or is there do you find that you are editing differently in 3d than you would be if you were editing in 2d well there's more to think about. There are more things that you have to worry about. Um, there are more ways, you know, a lot of people don't like 3D for a reason because the 3D wasn't done well. I mean, there are two things with, with 3D. One is you have to make it comfortable. On set, they adjust how much depth there is within a shot. I can't really change that, but I can change what's in front and what's behind. You know, you can reconverge shots and you can do that to make a sequence more comfortable or you can do it to create effects. You can accomplish things with 3D. You can make people feel certain ways by bringing things forward, by suddenly pushing things back. You know, there was a shot in Life of Pi where he's on the lifeboat that drops away from the ship. You know, you could either follow convergence so that he drops away and we stay with him, or you could keep convergence set and let him drop away, which is what they did in camera. Or I actually did the opposite. I started him slightly forward, and as he dropped away, I pulled back. So I accentuated that drop. In 2D, we were not having this discussion because it's just it's just a shot. So uh, there are a lot of 
things you can do with 3D and things that you have to worry about, things that are problems in 3D. You know, over-the-shoulder shots are often a problem because the person whose shoulder you're over, if you don't want to put the person who's the subject too deep, the person whose shoulder you're over might very well be in front of the screen. And if they're in front of the screen and they intersect with the right edge of the screen, that's weird looking. And so you have to do what's called a floating window to essentially bring the frame edge forward as well. So you can bring the frame edge forward so that it's in front of whatever is in front of the screen. We have floating windows on hundreds of shots. And some people, when they do 3D, they try to avoid that. They compose very carefully so that they never do that. We didn't do that. So we've got hundreds of floating windows in, in Gemini Man. I and Mark Sanger, and he said a lot of times it's that transition between a cut, like he said in Gravity, you'd have these close-ups on a face, and then you would cut to the vastness of space, which there's really no 3D to it because it's infinity. Yeah. What's a problem is evolution design your eyes to uh, always focus where you're converged. When you're in a movie theater, that's not true. That's not what happens. Your eyes are always focused on the screen, but they converge in front or behind, which can be uncomfortable if you go too far. And if you go too far, you can't do it, and it really hurts, and you don't know why. And then you take off your glasses and go, oh, that's why. But what happens is if you're looking at the screen and something comes out in front of the screen, you can follow it very comfortably. But then if you cut to something converged behind the screen, that hurts because your eyes have to do a snap adjustment, which they weren't evolved to do. So that's what you want to try to avoid. There are things you can do to ease that. Sometimes with a shot, you know, a, a big wide shot of something where everything's far away, where there's, as you say, no inherent 3D because your eyes don't really see 3D past about 50 or 70 feet. You don't have to put that right on the screen. You can put that behind the screen and that makes it feel even bigger. But if you just cut to that from a close-up where you're out, that's, that's uncomfortable. But what you can do is if you want that effect of it being big, you can cut to it right at the screen plane and then during the shot, push it back. And people won't notice, but they'll feel it. They'll, they'll feel that the, the cut won't hurt as much, but they'll still get the impression that you want from it feeling big, which is when you push something back. Because when you push something back, you know, if you don't scale it, so like here, as I bring this forward, it gets bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller. But if I push it, if you take something and push it back and forth in depth without scaling it, you don't really feel it. It doesn't feel like it's, receding and approaching, but it is, your brain doesn't process it the same way. So you can get away with fairly big moves. And uh, that's one other thing you do to try to smooth things out. So there's a lot of extra variables to contend with in 3D. Are you always cutting with glasses on or is there some using some other? No, glasses. <laughs> yeah, I spent a lot of time with, are my glasses here? Are they? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would hope you have like uh, special thing, glasses that are Tim Squire's glasses. I have some I have some custom glasses. I don't, I don't necessarily use the, the ones you get from the movie theater. <laughs> um, one thing we should talk about is sure. uh, frame rate because, yeah. uh, you know, to understand why we shoot at 120. After Life of Pi, which was 24, we discovered 3D is great, but there are some problems with 3D especially problems with 3D that relate to 24. You know, 24 has inherent motion blur and strobing, which is what we're used to. Great artists have done great work with that for a long time. But in 3D, strobing tends to be more annoying, more noticeable and more annoying. And the way that cinematographers try to address that is by opening up the shutter angle, which helps to minimize the strobing but increases motion blur. Mm -hmm. yep. So... There were some scenes where Pi is on a life raft, you know, on his little raft that's bobbing up and down in ocean, and we were losing his performance in the motion blur. The movie that Ang wanted to do next that we haven't done was about uh, it was a boxing. There was a lot of boxing in it. And you think of the way, the, the way that boxers move in the ring, not in the movie boxers, but real boxers move in the ring, you'd never see them. Uh, because there's so much bobbing and weaving, uh, you lose a lot of the performance. And so we thought the only way to address that would be, well, let's try doing some experiments at higher frame rates. Because at that time, Jim Cameron was pushing, was pushing 60. So we shot a bunch of tests 
And we discovered that at 24, when we shot tests with real boxers, and at 24, you couldn't see them. And at 60, you could. At 60, you could see what the guy's thinking as he's coming in. It made a big difference. We thought, okay, we would shoot high frame rate. But 60, 60 has a problem because if you shoot 60 and you still have a 24 frame deliverable, creating that 24 is very difficult because you know 60 is 24 times two and a half. Uh, so it's, it's complicated and expensive making a 24. So what we decided to do uh, after some consulting with some people and thinking about it is if you shoot at 120, that way that's 20 times five or 60 times two. And if you shoot with a 360-degree shutter, which you can with digital canvas, you can easily create a 24, and you can also easily create a 60. On Billy Lynn, we were not thinking we would ever release at 120. We weren't considering that as a release format. That was a capture format. There's some software called TrueMotion that uh, RealD has. To make a 24, you could just take, take three frames and combine them and then discard the next two. And then combine the next three and discard the next two, and it would look like you shot with a 216 shutter. Or if you did two and, and threw away three, it looked look like a 144 shutter. You could choose. But what this uh, True Motion software does is it combines, you know, you can have all of this frame and a little bit of this frame and a little bit of this frame and have softer, you know, smoother or sharper edges for the strobing when you go down to, to lower frame rates. So we could, by capturing at 120 with a 360 shutter, the idea was we could create a 60 frame per second version that looked better than if we shot it at 60. And we could create a 24 that looked better than if we shot it at 24. And we would have control over how much uh, motion blur and how much strobing there was shot by shot or frame by frame if we wanted to. So 120 was never considered as a release format, but we had the capability to watch 120 in our cutting room. So we did, and it looked amazing. For Billy Lynn, we did have a few theaters. We had uh, three theaters, one in Taiwan, one in Beijing, one in Shanghai, and then very briefly, one week in LA and uh, a couple weeks in New York that showed it at 120, 4K, 3D, 28-foot Lamberts, which is twice as bright as a normal 2D movie. Those Those screenings, those theaters were sold out for months in China. It's an amazing experience watching a movie that way. For Gemini Man, Dolby Vision theaters can show it 120 2K 3D, and some will. I don't, I don't know what the release schedule is yet. We will have a couple of theaters that will show 4K, uh, and in China there will be a bunch of theaters that will show it 120 4K 3D bright. What is your approach to data? How do you view dailies. You talked about pulling select reels. That's kind of how you edit. When you're watching dailies for the first time, what are you actually doing? How do you approach that? Most often, I'm not where the crew is cleaning dailies. I'm on my own. So I'm not going to a proper formal daily screening. And I tend to think just sitting and watching dailies is not worth the effort. Uh, Passively. So, Yeah. I don't take notes, you know, even when I do go to dailies, like when I'm like when I was in Budapest, I went to dailies every day. But they were very kind of abbreviated dailies. We wouldn't wouldn't watch everything, so I couldn't couldn't choose takes that way. So you know, just watching and get impressions, but that's it. So when I'm working on my own, I don't do that. When I get footage for a scene, I'll watch a master, you know, if there is a master, I'll watch enough to understand what the scene is, to see what they were doing emotionally, what the blocking is, figure that out. And then I just start with the, the first setup and the second setup, and I don't sit and watch every take. Some editors don't really use pop-up monitors. I don't know if you do, but I do. Uh, if I have seven takes of something, 17B, seven takes, I'll open up all seven takes in pop-up monitors, six takes in pop-up monitors and one in the source monitor, and just go through them line by line and pull out the pieces, all the pieces that I think are working best. What's the value uh, of doing that in pop-up monitors instead of just sequentially in source? Because then I can, I have this line here and I have the same line here and I have the same line here and I have the same line here and I can, if I don't know which one I like best, 
you know, I have them marked in out. I just click on it, hit six, click on it, hit six, click on it, hit six. And, you know, I've got all of them available right in front of me at all, all the time. That's kind of become an integral part of my process is uh, to have all the different takes of a setup open to me. So I'm watching takes take five. And, well, was that better in take three, which I closed four minutes ago? Well, I can go find it again. Or, no, it's right there. So it's for comparing them, comparing takes, I, I just find it more helpful to if I watch them in pop-up monitors. And it's not necessarily, I don't necessarily go line by line by line by line. You can watch chunks, but if I have them all open, then I can compare them more easily because they're all just right in front of me. You don't gang them, though, do you? So that no. They travel at the same time. No, because they wouldn't necessarily travel together anyway. And also, if I gang them, there's a chance I wouldn't be watching parts of them. If I gang it, that means I'm dragging past a bunch on all these other ones that I haven't watched yet. Then I'm not doing my job. And and Ang and the crew do, do watch dailies, like a legitimate, like old school dailies. Yeah, especially on these last couple of 3D movies, he thought it was really important for the crew to see what we were watching because 120 does not look like 24, and thought it was really important for everybody, not not the whole crew, but you know, the camera, certainly the camera department and. Anything with stunts, the stunt coordinators are there and the script advisor, of course, and sound and the people who need to know what we're doing. It's good to to bring them in to see dailies. And one thing we did on Life of Pi, the shipwreck sequence in that was something we shot early on in Taiwan. And of course, it was a combination. I had to use some stuff from the previs, but we, we were able to temp comp a lot of it. But we were still less than halfway through the shoot. When I had that whole sequence put together with music and sound effects and everything, uh, Ang and the producer saw it, and they decided at lunch over the next week, our screening room held about 40 people. They brought the whole crew in in shifts to watch it, just to, as a as a morale booster. Sure. Because it was really really impressive. You know, you can be on a set, you know, with this wave tank going, and you know the camera's way over there, and you just don't know what the hell's going on. So for the crew and like. Everyone, all the grips, uh, the drivers, everyone came in and watched it, and um, it was a it was a big help. So, uh, but especially when you're working in a format people aren't used to, it's important to see it properly. Tim, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed talking to you. Sure, just a huge wealth of information. Thanks for listening to the Art of the Cut podcast. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 200 interviews with the world's top editors. Thanks again to my guest, Tim Squires, ACE, and thanks to Michael Zack for editing the interview. I'm Steve Holfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, give us a like, leave a comment, and make sure to tell a filmmaking friend.